I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. I've met Andreas Berger at various times in the last 15 years, and he has been consistently impressive every time I've met him. It was therefore no surprise when in 2019 Swiss Re came calling with a major task to fix its consistently misfiring and loss-making Corporate Solutions, or Corso, business unit. Two years later, and the turnaround at Corso has been remarkable. I think if you listen here, you can see how Andreas has been able to do it. He does what good managers are supposed to do. He brings technical excellence, but doesn't get bogged down in it. He understands the importance of correct management structures, but doesn't come across like a consultant. And he gets tech and data, but isn't a technocrat. Most importantly, He's also really transparent and honest about where things have gone wrong and knows how important it is to make remedial decisions quickly and get on with executing them. But the key factor overarching all of this is that he is a charismatic communicator who does all of the above with a smile on his face and the ability to bring staff, brokers and clients along with him for the journey. As you can imagine, these ingredients make for a really good podcast one where we get stuck into everything Corso, and all the big challenges facing the industry today. So let's get on with the show. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Andreas, thank you so much for coming on The Voice of Insurance. It's really great to be speaking to you again. And probably at a very optimistic time for you. Happy times. Had really strong first half results. So after all that, would you say all the remedial work that you've been doing at Corporate Solutions is done or is there more to come? Well, look, I should say Corso bounced back and there's back to profitability. It's all good. It was heavy lifting. It was not just about fixing what went wrong, you know. It's also about creating a sustainable basis for the future in order to also create a foundation for profitable growth in future and be a sustainable partner in the corporate insurance space. I think that's the mantra that we're pursuing. And to also position ourselves as the specialized risk partner for corporates. So that's our positioning. Now, if you look at the first half year results in 2021, 
Corporate Solutions, we reported a net income of 262 million for the first half year, following a very successful turnaround that started in 2019, went through 2020. And then obviously in 2021, we could then harvest. And this reflects also the significant improvement compared to COVID net losses that we had in the prior year period. And that was the 312 million. Now, on the premium development side, we could see that from a gross-written premium perspective, we could still grow very nicely. So it was, on the one hand, rate increases, but also we could grow in special areas that we targeted. So it was not just a fixing, but it was also taking advantage of market dynamics. And so this was very healthy. So you see a very good uptick in gross-written premium. And if you look at the net earned premium, there you see for the first half year, it was 3.3%. So that's because all the pruning effects are earning through in U.S. gap. So you're losing business, but then at the same time, you are getting new business on board and rate increases also play their role. Now going forward, as the pruning now is digested, it's almost completely earned through, you will see now the net earned premium coming closer to the gross written premium growth. So that's the effect that you see. ROE, I mean, more than 21%. We had a reported combined ratio below 93%. Very, very good. And I think it was the best quarter that Corso ever had. And that's really on the back of very, very hard, decisive actions and very focused approach and very disciplined technical excellence. And on those actions, obviously, since you came in, you've made a lot of changes. What do you think were the changes that made the most impact? What were the most important things that you did? I said before, there's no miracle here. Yeah? So <laughs> really, I'm honest about this. It's no miracle. We just have to be super disciplined yeah, and stringent execution on what you think needs to be done and not getting distracted. And that, I think, was the fix-it period. It was a combination of all these things that led to the turnaround of Corso. Number one, we addressed management and governance. Yeah. We have uh, streamlined the leadership structures. We have brought in a new management team that almost had a 360-degree view on business problems to solve. Before, we were a very small management team, and actually the inputs, for instance, from risk, the inputs from operations, the inputs from finance, et cetera, and underwriting, but also from the market side, that all needed to be discussed at the table in order to come to robust decision-making. The second one was the response to market, as we call it, so that was the portfolio pruning, addressing unprofitable portfolios or portfolios that were not sustainable, addressing rate increases, required rate increases, pushing it through as significant performance and reserving issues. Also, we addressed in multiple lines of businesses and we addressed 20% of our book was basically pruned. So that was very tough as an exercise. Then the expense side, we have right-sized the organization, made it much more effective, took management layers out, made it a bit leaner and the proximity to markets we increased. So the operating model was addressed. So that in itself brought down the expense ratio to the benchmark levels where our relevant set of peers are operating. So that was that part. And then finally, the reinsurance and capital management part, you know, where we had a stringent use now of reinsurance in order to protect our balance sheet. We came from a very high net risk appetite position relative to the size of the balance sheet. And then by reducing limits and significantly increasing also the reinsurance protection and also including retroactive instruments, that brought also the balance sheet in a position that was much more sustainable. What do you think it was that would cause that outsized net appetite? 
was it the fact that you were Swiss Re? Was it that feeling that you weren't actually perhaps behaving like an insurance company and more like a reinsurance company? Well, it was the belief that on the back of a very strong parent balance sheet company, you could obviously write high net limits and bring yeah. out net capacity, high net capacity into the market. And I think, in essence, the idea is actually quite good to say to a corporate, if you engage with me, you can use my balance sheet and I'm prepared to give you high net capacity. So that's honest net capacity Swiss Re versus I give you capacity, but then I fact out 90% of it, et cetera. And you don't know who's sitting then behind as a corporate insured. No, that was not the idea. The idea was really to expose the balance sheet. Now, the, the issue was that the underlying causal balance sheet was not equipped to carry such a high net capacity. And the reinsurance programs that we had in place was not effective. Uh, so we had reinsurance program protection in place, but we had a too high net retention. So all the losses that came in were actually exactly in the net retention. So it was an ineffective reinsurance program that has been addressed. We're quite happy with where we are. We are a bit more in line with markets, with our peers, and also the line size strategies is much more digestible for a company like Swiss Re Corporate Solutions. And nevertheless, we still have high capacity. We still believe in our underwriting. We are not facking out so much. So we think that the underwriting that we do is sustainable underwriting. The risk adequacy is being looked at. Uh, so we're quite happy with where we are now. So it's right to say that the way that you've changed your capital structure hasn't changed the way you look at the risk itself. I think the underwriting, I mean, we had always very good underwriters, yeah, absolutely. And I think as we invested further into the risk engineering services team, we could strengthen the insights from the risk engineering that helped underwriters looking into the risk differently. What we also do now is we bring much more data into the underwriting process. Data from customers, obviously, yes, but also third-party data in order to get a better understanding, a more detailed understanding of risk and start to model it differently. So that's a trend that we continue. We invest heavily into that data and technology space in order to strengthen the underwriting, but also give actionable insights back to customers. You know, that's what we do. Yes. And was this a big culture change? It sounds like you almost changed everything in the last few years. Was it a big shock to everybody when you came in to try and change this? I remember when I joined, I sat down with a central team, but then very quickly I decided to do what I call the listening tour. So I traveled around the world and sat down really with people in the business, underwriters, claims handlers, the market people, with customer distribution people, et cetera, and with management also. I sat down with actuaries and so on. And I wanted to understand how they do their business. And I could identify some of the problems that they were facing during their business. So we didn't give them all the good instruments that they should have in order to take informed decisions in a very complex environment with high exposures. So that's something we addressed, but we saw that addressing it needed a very comprehensive review of causal. So I've very seldomly seen a turnaround that was addressing various levers at the same time. So the technical excellence lever, the capital management lever, the expense levers, et cetera. And that story needed to be told. So the awareness that only if you do a comprehensive review of the business, then you position yourself, you step up today for tomorrow. And I think that was so important. And along that journey, 
we had to engage with people. We had to tell them really what the North Star basically is in order to go through the pain. So if you go through the pain, you don't see immediately the impact of your actions. You earn it through a U.S. gap much later. So we had to give people the comfort that what they do is the right thing to do. Now, luckily, the customers and the brokers responded positively with our transparency, with our honesty, and gave us support along that journey. That was a real plus. And also, we started early and we did it quickly. And we did it before COVID. That was important. So we came out of 2019, a very painful 2019. We went through the worst. And we were ready. We felt much more resilient. And then came COVID. But we were strong enough to go through COVID then also. But it's a journey. It's a change. Yes, it's a change for underwriting, for claims, for sales. Increased use of data is actually the other change that our company is going through, like the whole industry is going through. So far, so good. So we had a lot of new people joining. So the diversity increased in the company. We were agreeing on a very transparent and a few sets of KPIs that we looked at. So there was clarity around that. Everybody understood. We had the same level of information and understanding of what needed to be done and then celebrate the successes as they come. In every other industry, people target market share as a measure of success. But for very sound reasons, in insurance, talk of market share is a no-no. But could we target something else? What about market presence? Because isn't performing well in the insurance world and outperforming on profitability really down to your market presence? After all, you can't place risks for clients you haven't met, and you can't underwrite business you haven't been shown. M&A and innovation do drive market presence, but it can also be steadily achieved at a lower cost through brand building. Brand building works in part by activating a bias we all have called the availability heuristic. It simply means that when our brains are searching for an answer, say which broker or insurer to contact, the answer that comes most readily to mind is deemed to be the right one. In short, the greater your brand awareness, the more opportunities you'll see. It's a straightforward mechanism the team at Free Partners use. Free Partners is a brand and communications agency specialising in the insurance sector. So if you're thinking you'd like to see more opportunities, perhaps Free Partners will come to mind. Check out their three-step standout Grow Strong plan at freepartners.com. And so you're talking about growth now, but sustainable growth. How are you going to achieve that? And obviously, you've exited some lines as well. So when you've exited a line, is it because you've decided that it's not something that's ever going to be sustainably? Yeah. Is your intention to be permanently in a line once you're in a line? So you give that consistency to the client, say, we're never going to pull out of this line now because we believe in it long term. So when you talk growth, allow me to emphasize disciplined, profitable growth. Unfortunately, we have to use those additional words in the corporate insurance space because very often we've seen growth without that discipline that was not applied. And you saw the very negative results in the industry. So we think for once and for all, we need to really be disciplined and stop this falling back into the trap of a commoditized market, uh, the soft market environment. Yes, we are thinking about expanding in areas where we think we can offer something. Now, with the turnaround phase completed, we think we have a portfolio mix that we're happy with. Those are lines of businesses where we understand the business. We have something to offer. We have differentiated assets to offer. 
and the customers can rely on us, you know, on our balance sheet that we offer, but also the service and the risk insight that we offer. So that's something that we're very proud of. On the basis of the technical excellence, if we stay focused and disciplined, I don't have any doubt that we can weather the storm. Yeah? So we can be across all cycles in a very healthy situation, which we owe to our shareholders. That's very important. And not only to shareholders, also to our customers who need a strong insurance market to be a shock absorber. Yeah? And that was proven also in the COVID times. And I've read in other interviews that you've given around this time that you wanted to get closer to that customer, that perhaps some of the mistakes of the past with commodity, you're in excess layers, a long way removed in wholesale from where that customer was. Is that the real focus? Yeah, I think this journey started before I arrived, but it's fair to say that Swiss Re was a follow market and an excessive loss market. And in this market, it's much more difficult to show that differentiation that you have to demonstrate to the customer what you've got to offer. So it is a highly brokered market. It's very transactional. And you don't need all the infrastructure for a primary lead offer. But in order to be relevant and also to influence the insurance taking and the risk taking in the insurance market, we needed to drop down closer to the risk because there the customers and the brokers could really see the differentiation that we can bring to the table. So that's, for example, on the international program side. So if you drop down further to the primaries, and when you are then in the primary, then you talk about leading the primary. Now, our customer base, the corporates, typically they are present in international markets and they need international program support. So that's where you suddenly are influencing and where you can show differentiation. We have also looked at addressing customer pain points and also addressing inefficiencies in the industry. And luckily, Swiss Re and Swiss Re Corporate Solutions in particular didn't have the heavy IT legacy that you find in the industry. So we could build really very state-of-the-art technological platforms that support the heavy and complex international program administration. So that ease of doing business is coming through now. And this is another real winner for us and we even open it up, this platform, to competitors and other carriers, but also to insurance brokers, because we believe this is not a problem that we need to solve for ourselves only. This is an industry-wide problem, and it's a very popular offering. We're winning a lot of international program leads as we speak, because customers are now after the COVID crisis or during the COVID crisis and the hard market trends now and developments, they are willing to now take a tough decision to switch a program because it's a lot of work. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, around switching policies across 50 countries, for instance. So you're closer to the risk and therefore you're expecting better data submissions. You're obviously going to understand the claims because you're paying them directly and you're getting more involved in the engineering and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And also, as you're closer to the customer, you're closer to the data that you need. If you think about the innovative risk solution space that we have, you know, it's a team that's dealing with captives, is dealing with the parametric solutions, yeah. and data is critical. And if you are sitting somewhere on the next S layer, that's not possible. So that's why sitting down with the customer, also sometimes the broker is added to it, and then design the right parametric solutions. That's a market where you don't find many insurance companies that can offer this solution. I think the data aspect that's another point where we believe we can differentiate ourselves. So we have analyzed the customer universe. We have said 40,000 corporate groups 
head offices, obviously it would be much more than 40,000, is our relevant universe. And this is what we have to go after. The good news is that around 12,000 of those corporates are already somehow in contact with a Swiss Re Corporate Solutions. Very often actually through some shares, small shares in an excess situation or we follow someone, etc. Out of the 12,000, there are 140 customers that we call managed accounts. Here, we do have a very distinct value proposition that we bring to those customers. Very often, not only Corso, also reinsurance solutions, HTQ, our B2B2C offering. And here we can bring the best of Swiss Re to the customer through the access from Corso into that world. And I think that's something that we are very proud of and we're investing further into it because also we have seen that if you do a back testing, you know, we've seen that those customers that are managed accounts, number one, were stickier. We had a higher retention ratio. Number two, you could see that the cross-selling ratio was definitely higher. And number three, which is quite interesting, on a technical underwriting result basis, they were much more profitable through the cycle, even the soft market cycle. That's actually quite interesting. So why not doing more of it? Why not being relevant to those? And as we then get access to data, and data is the oil of the future, we know that, then I think that could be a win-win. These corporate ideal clients, I presume that they are what we would assume them to be global multinational businesses, the sort of household name type businesses that we'd all buy products from. Yeah, you find the very large ones, very large global multinationals. And then you see the, I mean, I would call them the large mid-corp companies, suppliers sometimes who in their own right are very international. Yeah, so they have operations in 20, 30, sometimes 50 countries. On the revenue side, there are in the billion space, but probably not in the triple billion space. They are very healthy and they're embedded in an ecosystem and we are partnering with them. We started the international program space with the mid-market space, actually, in order to learn, to get experience and to also test our system, test our platform, test our network. I mean, it's fair to say that we have international programs with 150 countries. People are very surprised to hear that because they only hear it from the large incumbents in the industry. Now we have 150 countries. We have 26 own offices, but we have got a very strong network because we are a reinsurance company as well. So those are seedings all over the world that are now partnering with us as local carriers for international insurance programs. And the good thing is they all operate on that platform. That's the new thing. There's no Excel sheets flying around, et cetera. And that's the new thing, this ease of doing business. That's very nice. And that ideal relationship that you're sort of describing, this 140 who've got into this club, you know, those managed clients, and you've got the 12,000, which you do have a relationship out of the 40,000, the universe. So over time, how many managed relationships do you think you'll be able to get to? Because I presume that's where you really feel you're going to gain all that trust. Though you have a client who's seeking you out and then yep. you're sort of seeking each other out and you like them because they're loyal and they're probably more profitable than everyone else, but they like you because you're giving them loads of added value, I presume. Exactly. And that's the interesting part that it's a win-win. Yeah. So we could partner with them and they're actually interested in our risk insights very much. They see that we embrace data and technology. That's what they're looking for. Yeah. They see that we are trying to do things differently to address the clumsy processes in the industry. That's what they find refreshing. And we would like to increase that number from 140 to between 200 and 300 in the next phase. We have identified industry clusters that where we believe we can play a role. 
We have looked at sustainability angles and we've looked at digitization angles when we did that selection of those customers. But the 12,000 are also important, but that's a much more trading relationship. So we still do very normal trading. Uh, yes, we still follow. That's very important. And here, the technical excellence is relevant. The rate adequacy is relevant. If you don't get your rate that you need, you know you have to be disciplined. Yeah? So you don't have to. You're not forced to grow. Um, we predominantly looking at the bottom line. But I think the 140 up to 300, that is the next phase for the managed account space, yes. And as you grow, do you have in mind an ideal size for Corso? Is there a point at which everything becomes more efficient or your expense ratio suddenly falls away or you just your ROE goes crazy? Or is it much more organic than that? Do you have in mind an optimal size? First of all, we are in a situation now that we think the portfolio shape is healthy. Now we've done another exercise we looked and we called it the target liability portfolio. We looked at how does an optimized portfolio look like in future? And out of this exercise, we have derived um, growth areas in our portfolio. So definitely we are looking at expanding. We're looking at expanding in lines of businesses where we believe we are underweight and there's an attractiveness uh, to that line of business, in particular in the context of the overall portfolio mix. When you think about growing, obviously, you think about organic growth. And I've highlighted some of the approaches through the customer strategy that we designed and distribution strategy with brokers that we refreshed. But we're also looking at inorganic growth. Already today, we know that there are certain portfolios out there in the market that could be actually quite healthy as an addition to our sub-portfolios. And that's something we definitely have a look at. And we're going to continue to do that but we're not dependent on any M&A, et cetera. And we have one focus that is delivering the top line, the bottom line. That's why the target combined ratio that I desire must be in the area of better than 95% sort of over the cycles in order to produce also double digit return on equities. Yeah? So that's something we're working very hard on. And we want to prove to the markets that it is possible through all market cycles to deliver this. Yeah. And when you mentioned inorganic, wouldn't be M&A in buying whole companies, or is it the sort of thing where you might be trading and buying a portfolio in a certain country or in a certain line or that sort of thing? We're not forced into anything, but we're looking, we're screening the market. We've been approached by people who think that they needed to adjust their portfolios. Yeah. That's what we do at the moment. So that's what I would call bold on acquisitions. Yes. The market itself, how do you view the market right now? In terms of its price adequacy overall, I presume you're quite pleased with the way things are going. Well, give me the crystal ball, yeah. <laughs> what I can tell you is that all the external factors that we observe, interest rate environments are low. We see now inflation, various types of inflation being discussed. We see the sustainability as a topic. NatCat is a very much discussed topic. And the question is really, are these external factors all reflected in the costing tools. And this is the asset test because the problem of the industry was that you had a huge gap between the actuals and the expected, the A versus E. So we had always a positive bias in our industry as far as the expectations around losses were concerned. When the reality kicked in and we felt or realized that the actual losses were much higher than what we expected. We did not a good job in our industry in addressing to close that gap 
fast enough. So that's why he had that downward spiral from the rate side, and then he didn't address it. So hence, he had negative results. That's something we have to address as an industry, and we have to continuously reflect net cat, we have to reflect inflation, et cetera. So that means from a rate development, I think we are still seeing rates increases. Obviously, it depends on the type of business you're in. In property, as an example, you have to go really down to the occupancy level. There are much more difficult occupancies with higher risk exposure than others. And that is then obviously also reflected in the rate the development. But overall, I think the floods in Europe have shown it. The net cat season only started in the US. And this is definitely something the industry is looking into. What we see also from the reinsurance markets is that there's no way that there will be a moderation then on the rate hardening. It's actually continuing until we find that rate adequacy that's needed in the market. I also believe that at some point we will see that moderation and some brokers are already indicating that there might be a moderation or you can see a plateauing in certain markets, but also in certain lines of businesses. So let's see. We still believe we're in a good space. Um, the rate increases are earning through uh, US gap wise. So you will see this coming through and obviously through next year, et cetera. But I think we stay vigilant. We stay very close to it. We are talking to customers much more frequently and are much more transparent and detailed in the technical discussion. Okay. You mentioned about lost. The first thing to say about that is I think to be an underwriter, you just have to be optimistic, don't you? It shows that underwriters always have this inbuilt bias to be positive. Otherwise, you'd never insure anything because you'd always worry about what could go wrong. Because perhaps the brokers worry too much about what could go wrong, which is why they're not underwriters and they just don't take any risk. You mentioned about inflation. And obviously, before COVID, at the end of a very long soft market, we were worried, as we often are, about overall reserving adequacy. And again, increasing social inflation and loss trends overall. Obviously, COVID came in and kind of put a pause on a lot of that. But now, given your view, this great global view and a view of scale. Are you seeing any of those lost trends coming back on now that the whole global economy is reopened, the courts are opening again? What's your view now? Do you feel that some of our fears were overblown or, or do you think it was about right and that the price adjustment was absolutely justified? That's a, that's a very good question. And I can really speak to it because we started the review of our strategy before COVID. Then we went through COVID and now we are somehow coming out of COVID. And the question is really, what did COVID do? Yeah? So we had the loss trends that we saw. We adjusted the APLR, the a priori loss ratios, and felt that we were at a very adequate level. This was reflected then in the rates, and we found that rate adequacy in the market. We saw customers really understanding it and joining us on that journey. And then came COVID, and suddenly you had a standstill. So in particular in property, you didn't see losses coming through. Yeah. And that's something we observed. Now, as the economy picked up again and production picked up, we saw then suddenly more normal loss trends, loss to developments again. So that was one of the explanations of the prior development numbers that we showed. So the releases were predominantly, to a large extent, property due to the COVID situation. So there was absence of losses in those times. But we see now that they're coming back to normal trends. So we have good reason to believe that the actions we took were adequate. Uh, they were reasonable and uh, they needed to be taken. 
it's the right level. And that's something that we see now in the numbers. So again, it's a very granular technical approach that we take. We discuss it with analysts. Our analysts understood it. And what about casualty? Obviously, because again, you have a situation where claims are simply not being made, courts weren't even open anyway. Is that starting to pick up again? Well, we observed the situation, obviously, and we're mainly talking about US, also Australia. We're waiting for court cases in Australia on COVID, but we're also looking at UK, for instance. But as far as casualties concerned, the big concern for me is the social inflation. And that's a topic that will stay on our agenda. And I think we need to really understand how this will impact the line of business casualty in the US, how the market will react. It's a topic that's not completely new, but I think people realize now that something needs to be done here. Otherwise, I cannot see insurance companies in a wider sense exposing their balance sheets and not reflecting this in their rates. So it's ongoing. We see it. And you will always hear me as somebody who's quite critical there. I don't want to expose Corso with excessive U.S. casualty in the large corporate space due to the social inflation problem. And we've been very transparent and open about it also to our customers. And we're even sitting down with them and trying to find solutions, trying to understand the losses. You know, we do a lot of modeling around that with them, but it's not trivial. And it's here with us for a while. Back on COVID, you rightly alluded to the industry, obviously always having unknowns, historically always having unknowns that come and bite the industry, things that are simply not expected coming and changing the end result. What do you think now that COVID is slowly maturing? Obviously, this time last year would have been far too soon to be talking about anything to do with COVID. What do you think are the insurance knowns and unknowns at the moment? And do you think we might be getting to the stage where some of the disputes that perhaps might be coming into the fore? Or I'd love to have your view anyway about where we are in terms of what we do know now and what we don't know. The pandemic was not unknown. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's just to stress that again. So there's nothing new. I read lots of stigmas about it over the last 15 years. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, my CEO, Christian Momenthaler, he, he was part of a publication, I think it was in 2007, with other chief risk officers. There was a publication about pandemic. So the consequence of pandemic was not new. It was new to see now the response from governments to have a collective lockdown globally. So that was to bring everything to a standstill. That was new. That wasn't foreseen. But I'd like to come to a different topic. And it's a topic, how does the insurance industry look at risks and how do we trade with risk? We've seen now through the COVID times that the contract certainty aspect was really a critical one. There were wordings out there that were not clear. And then if you see then various complicated towers, et cetera, where you had various wordings, maybe sometimes contradicting each other or not being very clear, that complicated the issues. And that's exactly the situation we found ourselves in. So what are we underwriting? What was the intent as everybody agreed to take on risk, but also the customer to take it to the broker and the broker finding a market for the risk? This is something that the industry needs to tackle. We need to get much better at agreeing and getting that transparency around wordings and what we're really covering and also then create that contract certainty. That's our core product. And then in the claims handling, that's the delivery. You know, that's where then suddenly also in the customer experience terms, that's the strongest lever. If you do a good claims handling, 
this is exactly the moment of truth in insurance. I think it reminded us that we need to really come back to the core and the basics of our industry and do a good job there. That's what we owe to the customers. It's interesting you were talking earlier about parametric solutions. Sadly, some of the parametric products that were being developed because of something triggered on hotel occupancy, for example, the sad thing is, of course, it ends up being a policy that just covers everything. Do you think more parametric solutions would have helped? Or do you think it's just good old-fashioned really reading the wordings and making them really clear in whatever original language they're written? I think the biggest problem actually were the small businesses. And I don't know if the parametric cover would have helped here. Yeah, So it really comes down to very basic property insurance cover, what is in, what's not, what's the intent, and then is that translated into clear wording, simple and clear wording where everybody has a common understanding of what is covered, what not. Parametric solutions, I'm a big supporter of that. And if you look at the NetCat space as a, for a moment, you see the underlying cover, property damage cover with NetCat elements. That's sort of the ground up cover that people have. And we see very often in the case of an event, how long the claims handling process takes. Remember Fukushima or Thailand floods, et cetera, you had years of claims handling. So the moment when you open the file, the claims file and closing the claims file, that was too long. The beauty here is if on top you have a parametric cover, we saw it now with IDA. So the event hit the country and we checked did it trigger the parametric cover? Yes or no. If so, the payout was done instantly. Within days, the customer had the money. And I think this is something that's unbeatable. That's the moment of truth that I was talking about. The companies are becoming much more resilient, are coming back or staying in business rather than waiting for funds for years, et cetera, until the payout is done on the claims handling side. So that's the beauty. And we get a lot of very positive feedback, delighted customers. Uh, They love, they understand the product. It's not too complicated and it actually uh, helps. You know, that's what insurance is supposed to do. That's the feedback we get from the customers also. Something else has been happening, obviously, as the market turned, as in other market turns, we've had new startups come in in 2020. From your position, have they made an impact on the market? Yes, I think there's one thing we can learn really from startups and insurtechs, as we we call them. They typically address a specific problem in the insurance value chain where they address a customer pain point or an inefficiency in the industry. That's what they do. We've seen a lot of very good examples and solutions. We saw that customers were jumping on it. But the problem was really that it was just a little process step in the whole value chain that they were addressing. So in an ideal world, you could say, okay, if that is really a good solution for a specific process step and it helps me as an insurance company, I could integrate them into my insurance company. This is something I've seen. Very often, I've also seen dreamland expectations, then coupled with valuations that were peaking and ultimately there was no sustainable business case behind that. So that was just the expectation, the hope. And at some point, the reality kicks in. Do you think if someone's found this little pain point remover, then just to license it across your whole network and not worry about buying them or using it as some kind of comparative advantage? If they found a universal pain point in the industry that they can sell to everybody in the insurance industry, maybe you should just leave them to become the Microsoft of pain point removal number one and then just leave them to it. 
Look, I've seen so many presentations and the stories that were told. That's all fine. I think we need this enthusiasm, this experimenting. We experience also people who are creative enough and risk-taking enough to do this kind of job. You know, that's important. But what we were quite successful with was with partnering, partnering with startups you know, to say, look, that's interesting. We can bring something to the party and you can bring something to the party. Yeah? So that helped. And this is something that I think is much more fruitful than always running after them, buying a whole set of intro techs and then hoping that you can advance your core business by integrating them. That's something that I haven't seen a lot of. Because if they have something, it might well be a universal solution. And just to be smart in the way that you implement and license and integrate their product rather than having to buy the, them and sort of stop your competitors from using them. And are you agnostic in that kind of attitude to some of these people? Because, you know, you don't buy Microsoft just because they've got really good office software, do you? We all know that I'm sure Munich reuse Office and so do you, and you all use Teams and so do Lloyd's. So would you have that attitude to InsurTech to say, well, you've got this niche thing here and we're happy to license it and to partner with you and to use your product rather than necessarily buy them? That's exactly what I was aiming for, to say, look, we, yeah. we partner rather than going on a shopping spree. That's definitely something we should do. The good thing is tech companies like to work with Swiss Re because we do have the right capabilities in-house. They know we like to work with data. We embrace data and we embrace technology. And we've got a lot of people. So the skill set you find in Swiss Re is quite complementary to what you find in InsurTechs. That's a very positive one. So partnering can really make a lot of sense. But again, if there's an opportunity and a need you know, to have an equity stake, et cetera, that's part of the discussion of partnering. But going out and buy everything that you find is not really what we do. We've been approached by a lot of startups. Some were backed by PE. So yes, we looked at it. I haven't found the really golden nuggets yet. Maybe while we were scouting, we were not scouting well enough. So we tested a few things. We went with pilots. So, so far in 2020, I haven't seen anything coming through really. What we have done though is in the solution space, there we could see many more partnerships to complement our product suite, in particular for all the geospatial data, for instance, information that we could add to the product suite that we had already when it came down to risk exposure management and exposure management on the CAT side, for instance. Yeah. One question, I want to change the subject a bit. ESG has become the word of the year in the last couple of quarters. I want to ask you the question, you know, obviously we're becoming far more focused on environmental and of course, environmentalists would be very focused on us and probably on Swiss Re and in Lloyds of London and all other places, the visible side of the insurance world. The world is going to decarbonize over the next 20 to 30 years. Some would like to do it faster. Some would really like to have it a little bit slower. How do we support those industries that are carbon heavy? Our economies that are carbon heavy. I just did a podcast with some people in Poland, and Poland is 75% coal powered. How do we help and support our ESG goals, where we've obviously under pressure to say, actually, we're not doing coal as of now, never go doing it again, to that build a transition where we are on a plan where we are going to reduce coal over the next 25 years, and we're going to be supporting their journey into investment in renewals. I just wonder what's your view on that, because it seems to be too easy for us just to say no and then turn our back on some customers, very long-term energy customers, who have to transition themselves so perfectly understanding that they need to. So how do we square that circle as an industry of still providing that support to those customers that need the support, 
and know some of it is dirty. We'd rather they weren't doing it, but they're promising that they're on a transition. How do we support them? So just to make one thing very clear right up front, we insure, invest, operate, and share our knowledge you know, to tackle sustainability challenges. And we commit to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So that's our headline. Now, obviously, you go now into all the details. And I'll come to your point, what do we do with thermal coal policy, for instance? We're committed to the Paris Pledge for action. So that's very clear. Christian Momentala is the co-lead for the WEF CEO group on yep. sustainability together with the CEO of IKEA. So they're now going to have their appearance at the COP26. So you could see you need that thought leadership and it's also part of our purpose. Yeah. So that's why I think to put that up front, if companies engage with us, they know what to expect. So big supporter of the sustainability aspect. Now, in order to achieve this goal, we need to support massive reduction on greenhouse gases and the real economy, you know, while supporting also the transition. And this is, I think, the key element. We need to support the firms when they transition to a net zero economy. Now, on the thermal coal policy, it's clear we introduced this policy in mid-2018, pledging not to provide reinsurance or insurance to businesses with more than 30% exposure to thermal coal utilities or mining. I think that's very important. That's very transparent, very clear. And then for transactions located in low and middle income countries that derive from more than 70% of electricity from coal, existing power plants can be covered until 2025. So that's sort of the other rule. And also if there's evidence that the insured is implementing effective emission reduction strategy. So that's our position. And then in 2020, as was recommunicated group-wide targets, of completely phasing out of a terminal coal business in OECD countries by 2030. It's very clear. And in the rest of the world, then it will be 2040. So that's transparent. Everybody knows this. And this also means that we give our clients sufficient time to adapt while this step is necessary to set ourselves on a trajectory to get to net zero by 2050. So 30% is the threshold. And yes, we do have customers in that space. And the frequency of engagements and discussions around transition and transition risk, it's picking up tremendously because it's inevitable. Everybody sits in the same boat. They also sit in the same boat. We see now a lot of companies in, for instance, mining industry who address their portfolio. So you see a lot of divestments, a lot of focus on different portfolio shapes that are supporting their journey towards net zero because we are all impacted and that's something we're addressing. So I'm quite happy with the position we're in. We are honest, we're transparent. We try to be as detailed as possible and we're learning every day. We're bringing that sustainability topic even closer to the core of our business and that's the journey we're on. It's a difficult thing because you've got to be the stick as well as being part of the carrot, haven't you? So it's, it's, it's a yeah. difficult balance. But I wish you well with that. I think that was a very good answer, actually, Andrea. So I think we've run out of time. So I just want to thank you for giving us the time and congratulations on all you've been doing and good luck with all your expansion plans and hopefully that you will be able to grow sustainably and the cycle won't come back to vices at some point in the future. So please do come back on The Voice of Insurance and give us an update perhaps sometime next year. But thank you so much. Thank you, Mark, and hope to see you in person very soon and stay safe. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, 
don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>